Welcome to Sci-Fi, the podcast for medical students and aspiring psychiatrists. Psi is the common symbol for psychiatry, and the phi symbol represents the golden ratio or divine proportion. Here, we aim to give you, the listeners, the right ratio of information so your brains don't get oversaturated, and the right amount of time so the podcast doesn't sound too draggy with the right amount of bullshit. Alright, fine. Well, an excessive amount of bullshit, but I suppose you have to deal with it. Also, I know that a lot of people might mistake this as a science fiction podcast because of the name sci-fi. But god damn it, all the cool good psychiatry podcast puns were taken. Recording from my very messy living room, this is Jason, and I am a core psychiatry trainee at the Oxley's NHS Trust in London. Here, I have Maoli with me. Hi, I am a clinical teaching fellow in the East of England. The title of today's episode is Suicide and Self-Harm, Saving People from Themselves. We will be covering definitions, useful statistics, and the key bits of history-taking, risk assessment, and management. So, I've been thinking to myself, Alright Jason, the first episode needs to be light-hearted to ease people in, not too complicated, something easily digestible and accessible, and somehow, we decided on suicide and self-harm. <laughs> it's not the most cheerful of topics, but it is something that we need to eventually cover, so we might as well get it out of the way. Yeah, you gotta eat your veggies before you can enjoy your roast. Also, if you plan to use this as a revision session, I recommend writing or typing notes as we go along. It'll probably help you focus and give you something to do. So, first off, let's start off with definitions. I know it sounds pretty obvious and self-explanatory, but it's always good to have clear definitions of different clinical presentations in your head. With that, suicide is any act that deliberately brings about one's own death, whereas self-harm is any act intentionally causing physical injury to the body, but not resulting in death. Like I said, nothing new or groundbreaking, and we probably wasted about 5 seconds extra of your time, but it's always good to be thorough. That being said, deliberate self-harm, or DSH, is something that's worth mentioning. This is an abbreviation that is becoming less fashionable nowadays. The term deliberate implies premeditation and willfulness, yet self-harm is something that's different for different people. It can be spontaneous, compulsive, and there may not be an element of awareness or conscious thought behind it. By using the word or the prefix deliberate, you may risk stigmatizing service users that present with self-harm. In addition, you'll notice that medical staff uh, try and avoid the phrase commit suicide. And this is for similar reasons. Suicide was decriminalized in the UK in 1961, which Jason thought was quite recent until now. And the use of the word commit uh, would imply an element of sort of criminality, hence why that term is also not fashionable. Well, I mean, I I think it's relatively recent, you know, 1961. It just sounds strange to me that suicide was a crime and there was a penalty for, for attempting it. Um, yeah, and also I'm not exactly the most politically correct person. But in this case, I do think that the words or the terms you use would definitely affect how you view your patients or how other people view the patients and also the way we manage them. So next, moving on to stats. So why is learning about suicide and self-harm important? Well, globally, the World Health Organization estimates about 800,000 people die from suicide annually. That's 10 per 100,000 people. That's one person every 40 seconds. That's 1 40th a person every second. A star maths there. A star maths. 
<laughs> in the UK, the rates are similar to the global average. Suicide is one of the leading causes of death in young individuals. So 10 to 19 year olds, the rate is about sort of 14%. And in 20 to 34 year olds, the rates were around 21%. I think this was back in 2018. Um, the UK government has come up with several suicide prevention strategies over the past few decades, and I think it's worth mentioning these. They've reduced the number of, or the size of paracetamol packages. They've introduced catalytic converters as a mandatory thing on, uh, thing on cars, and introduced free crisis lines. Despite all this, since 2017, the rates have been increasing, and I think you have quite an interesting theory on this. So the correct answer would be increasing social and economic stressors. And there's definitely been a lot of crappy stuff going on in the past few years. My money is on the fact that the rise in suicide rates coincided with the release of the Emoji movie and Batman vs Superman. I don't know if you've actually seen these movies, but they have no right to exist. And it led me to a really dark place in my life for a period of time. Dire times for the entire human race. Dire times. That being said, in 2018-2019, the legal definition for suicide shifted. It used to be that you had to prove someone had died by a suicide beyond reasonable doubt, but that definition shifted towards more of a balance of probabilities. This is in some ways good because it means that it's likely to shed a more accurate picture on the actual rate of suicides and bring more attention to the issues as a whole. Now, moving on to self-harm. The lifetime risk of self-harm is around sort of 17 to 13% for a given individual. In England and Wales, annually, 150,000 hospital referrals are made for self-harm. Like with suicide, the prevalence data is likely to be severely underestimated, and a lot of cases uh, go unreported. For the more astute and weirder listeners, you might ask, what about masochism and BDSM, do they fall under the umbrella of self-harm? And fret not, people, because I came prepared. So in order to answer the question, I very reluctantly went on to several BDSM websites, just for you viewers. So this is what I found on their websites, and they're actually quite, you know, they're, 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 it's, it's quite interesting. And to paraphrase, they said that there is the one difference between self-harm and kinky masochism is in the name itself. On a very basic level, the BDSM community makes a basic distinction between hurting someone and harming them. When you hurt someone, you cause them pain that's temporary and goes away after a short time with little or no intervention. Harming someone, conversely, means causing someone damage that doesn't go away on its own, at least not without significant intervention. And this damage can be physical or psychological. And, and, and it's pretty cool in the sense that at the end of, at the, end of the explanation, they advocate for people to, you know, if they do feel suicidal, if they feel that they want to harm themselves rather than hurt themselves, they put down uh, suicide prevention organizations, you know, crisis lines, Samaritans, Samaritans, all that stuff. And so it's a very, it's a very nurturing, supportive community, I found. It's interesting. That sort of nicely leads us on to our sponsor for today. Uh... <laughs> so, yeah, Sci-Fi is proudly brought to you by Whips and Things. Your one-stop shop for pain and pleasure. <laughs> no, uh, I, I wish I we're, wish we we're had, not sponsor. <laughs> yeah, no, I wish we had a sponsor, but we don't. Um, <laughs> so I actually love to go into the biological, psychological, and social theories why people self-harm attempt suicide. 
but we don't really have time to cover that. If that is something you're interested in, please pop us an email after and we can cover it in future episodes. So now we've covered the definition and the stats of suicide and self-harm, let us dive into one of the most important parts of assessment, history taking. For patients with suicide and self-harm, it is very important to identify risk factors from the clinical history in order to make as informed a risk assessment as possible. With that said, we have to bear in mind that risk prediction is not something that we can always do accurately. Numerous risk scales have been proposed in the past. These can provide false reassurance and should not be used to predict suicide. For a given individual, suicide cannot be accurately predicted at a single point in time. A lot of psychiatry and medical work is being comfortable with uncertainty and making decisions with these in mind. These risk factors can be used to aid your decision making on the likelihood that the patient will be safe to go home. You should take all the information you obtain into consideration, and that's why a thorough history taking is extremely important. There is significant overlap in risk factors for suicide and self-harm, so we'll be covering both of them using the same framework. To start off with, look at the patient in front of you, think about the demographics. For completed suicide, the male to female ratio is 3 to 1 across all age groups, whereas more females attempt suicide, 2 to 4 times more in fact. Likewise, self-harm is also more common in females than males at a ratio of 1.3 to 1. And just to add on to that, research has also shown that transgender people have one of the highest rates of suicide. Any transgender individual has a 40% probability that they will attempt suicide in their lifetime. This is a lot more marked in use and especially sort of use in the US. I don't really know where transgender people will fit in into this sort of male to female ratio, but it's, you know, it is interesting to note. Like in most history taking, we begin by obtaining the history of the presenting complaint. Whenever you're taking a history, it's always important to start off with open questions. If you were to ask them something along the lines of, you know, please tell me what happened, or could you tell me the sequence of events that led you to be brought here, you'd be able to get a lot more information from them by compared to just asking specific questions. With the history of presenting complaint, I'm a very simple person. I have a really small memory bank. So I like to break things down into, into a simple framework. You seem very proud of that. Oh, I am so proud of my stupidity. Uh, I, so I've divided <laughs> sort of the history of presenting complaint into three categories revolving around the suicide attempt self-harm episode. Uh, and it's broken down into before, during, and after the act. In total, there are 12 Ps. Five Ps for before, four Ps for during, and three Ps for after. So starting with the before, the five Ps. The first P would be precipitance. So it's very important to find out the trigger, whether it be bereavement, relationship breakdown, social issues. This sort of helps you identify these issues from the patient's perspective. You will also be able to get the sort of ball rolling in terms of ways to, to help them. The second P would be planning. So was this act planned or impulsive? How long have they been thinking of doing this? The greater the duration and attention to detail, the greater the risk. And then we have parting acts. Have they performed any acts in anticipation of their deaths? Have they left a suicide note, written a will, contacted child protection agencies if they have children, have them stay with a relative maybe? When patients put plans into place for after their death, they have a very high risk of seeing things through. And it's very important to note. And then we have the fourth P, precautions. Did they do things to prevent discovery? At a certain time, maybe they acted when, when they made sure people were away. Did they go off to an isolated location? Did they lock the doors? 
that sort of thing. The more precautions you have, the higher they are at risk for suicide. And the last P is a bit of a cheat, but being pissed. So drugs and alcohol abuse increase the risk of suicide and alcoholics carry a lifetime risk of three to 4% for suicide. Now we move on to during the act. With during, the four Ps are person, place, purpose, and process. The first two, person and place, are relatively uh, self-explanatory. Who were they with and where were they? In terms of purpose, ask what were their intentions? If someone were to, for example, have taken a non-lethal overdose, but had perceived it to be lethal, then you would think of their risk of uh, suicide as potentially being greater, uh, risk to themselves as being greater. With self-harm, um, inter- think about the intentions as well there. Different people would self-harm for different reasons. It could be that they're trying to avoid a more dangerous suicidal act. It could be as a form of self-punishment. It could be a psychological distress substitution or as a means of getting attention from loved ones. This bit of information is useful because it help in terms of how you would manage the self-harm going forwards. With process, explore how they did it. More violent methods such as hanging or jumping in front of trains or moving vehicle may put an individual at a higher risk as well. And just to recap that, so during the act, that would be person, place, purpose, and process. So moving on to the last, the final three Ps. So post-act, what happened after? Get details. Did they sort of change their mind and they called the police? Did someone else call the police or the ambulance? Were they found by someone? The second last P, present feelings. How are they feeling now? Are there any regrets? Patients that are not regretful or who minimize the situation are at a higher risk because they are more likely to do it again. And the last P, plans for the future. Ask them what are they going to do now? Are there any protective factors put in place so that they don't reattempt this? With my experience with patients, I think the more future-oriented they are, the less the risk, and you can be a bit more comfortable in saying they can go home. That leads us nicely onto the past psychiatric history. First, it's important to know they've had contact with psychiatric services, if there's been any previous admissions to hospital. This will give you a good idea of the historical risk and give you uh, information about the current risk as well. Yeah, I think just to add on to that, with the psych history, this just doesn't apply to suicide and self-harm, but most histories in general. What people tend to miss is about finding out the type of psychiatric services they've engaged with and also the chronology and the progress of events. You know, the number of admissions and the type of admissions, were they in intensive care units or were they just in an inpatient ward? Did they need home treatment team follow-up after the admission when they're discharged? This gives you a clear idea of risk because things from the past will inform you of things that will happen in the present and the future. Likewise, with previous attempts of suicide and self-harm, it's important to get details on these in terms of methods, timeline, triggers, so forth. Get as much information as the patient is willing to provide you. Also, it's worth remembering that up to 90% of people who die by suicide have a psychiatric diagnosis, and it's important to screen for common mental health illnesses associated with increased suicide risk, such as depression, schizophrenia, and personality disorders. They can concur an average lifetime risk of 10 to 15 percent for committing suicide so it's very important for for us to do a brief screen for the above mental illnesses so starting with depression look out for anhedonia for loss of enjoyment in pleasurable activities look out for low mood and low energy for schizophrenia try to rule out any hallucinations delusions or thought interference such as thought insertion withdrawal or broadcasting in personality disorders 
I know you already learned about 12 P's, but here are three more P's. In order to identify a personality disorder, it has to be persistent throughout life, prevailing across all aspects of life, and problematic in the sense that it impairs their function. Can everything in psychiatry be condensed down into P's? Uh... <laughs> a useful system, I feel. I wish I wish life was that simple, Maoli. Moving on to the next P, past <laughs> medical history. So after your psychiatric history comes your past medical history. Patients with chronic pain, chronic illnesses such as asthma, type 1 diabetes, epilepsy, all have an increased risk of suicide. And it's worth identifying these risks in the past medical history. After that comes the drug and allergies history. It's important to take a thorough drug and alcohol history here. Try and find out about prescription medications. These are important because these are the medications that patients can overdose on. Some of you may decide to include the alcohol history here as well. And that's, uh, again, important to take a good alcohol history because suicide risk increases relative to the amount of alcohol consumed. Yeah, so it's a bit of dealer's choice. I tend to put drug and alcohol in the drug history and allergies or the past psych history bit because it ties in quite a bit with most of mental illnesses. Uh, we call that a dual diagnosis. So somebody has a mental illness with coexisting substance abuse. And so because it's quite important, I tend to put it up there. Uh, if you want to put it in social history, that's fine too, but I will judge you silently. Moving on, it's important to screen for a forensic history. Prisoners and ex-convicts are at an increased risk of suicide, and so finding out about their forensic history is quite useful. With a personal history, if you have screened for personality disorder, and it seems possible that they do have personality disorder, it's always worth getting a detailed personal history to better characterize their behavior and emotional difficulties. Next up, we have family history. Find out if there has been any mental illnesses in the family or previous suicides as they would increase the likelihood of the patient attempting suicide. Net says the social history and lots of social factors would increase the risk of suicide, such as poor socioeconomic status, unemployment, debt, social isolation, very relevant in these COVID-19 times, troubled upbringing uh, involving traumatic episodes, bullying, abuse, so forth. Additionally, recent bereavement and failure to mourn is also an important risk factor to consider. People tend to take their lives on dates of significant events. Uh, so now that you've gotten as much information as you can from the patient, it's also important to confirm and to gain additional information from their friends and family via a collateral history. Once that's done, it's time to formulate your risk assessment. So with your risk assessment, there are three categories to fill in. Risk to self, risk to others, and risk from others. In other words, safeguarding issues and vulnerability. In a lot of documentation I've seen, people tend to record each category as either low, medium, or high. I think that risk is very subjective. And instead of doing that, they just focus on documenting identified risk factors and evidence from their history in order to rationalize the risk. What I've seen in a lot of documentation is that people tend to take the easy way out and they always use the term medium high because it covers both aspects and you could say well it's medium high they're probably safe to go home or oh no it's medium high uh they're they're probably suicidal and they need to be admitted so i don't like that so we have gone over how to identify risks uh key risk factors in your history taking and also taking them into account when formulating your risk assessment let's move on to the general management principles 
As with all management plans in psychiatry, you could take a biopsychosocial approach to management. Yeah, I'm not the best at the at the bio part, so I've just left it to Maoli to take care of. Thanks, bud. <laughs> Thank you. With the bio or the physical treatment side of things, if someone's come in with an overdose or a phys- uh, physical wound, you would aim to treat that first. With overdoses, you would look at your local guidelines or look at sort of national guidelines such as TOTS base and follow their recommendations. So with paracetamol, that would be your NAC or your N-acetylcysteine. With opioids, your naloxone, flumazenol for your benzodiazepines, glucagon for your beta blockers and so forth. With cuts, whether they're superficial or deep, you would aim to sort of uh, address them appropriately. You may even need surgical input there. I think one important thing not to overlook is the provision of analgesia in patients who have self-harmed. Research has shown that patients who have self-harmed are often offered less analgesia, and this may be for subconscious or sort of personal biases in terms of how you'd sort of treat them. And it's also shown that Uh, Such patients are made to wait in public spaces, making them feel rejected, judged, and even punished. So I think the key take-home message there is offer appropriate analgesia and just be a bit more sort of insightful in terms of how you'd sort of manage an individual who's presented with self-harm. My key take-home message from this is that I've been pronouncing analgesia as analgesia. Uh, (laughs) I guess it's never never too late to learn new things, I suppose. (laughs) So you've successfully treated injuries sustained in the self-harm episode or suicide attempt. What are you going to do next? Using information from your history taking and the risk assessment, you would now need to answer the main question, which is, does this patient need to be admitted? This is not an easy decision to make and it's not always clear cut. Being in a psychiatric inpatient unit may be a very jarring experience for some and in fact may worsen their presentation. Some patients who have a good support network would definitely fare better without an admission, while others with a clear social stressor are at a high risk and would benefit from an admission. There is never a clear answer, and we can only make decisions to the best of our ability. Once as a team, you have made a decision for them to be managed either an inpatient or an outpatient, we have to decide on treatment. The use of medications would depend on the underlying cause, so you'd think about antidepressants for depression, antipsychotics for schizophrenia, and mood stabilizers for bipolar disorder and so forth. With psychotherapy, there's two mainstays uh, that are proven to be effective. One is cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectical behavioral therapy. I don't know much about these, Jason. Would you be able to sort of shed some light on these? Uh, so CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy is based on the idea that our thoughts and behaviors influence our feelings. So there's that triangle of thoughts, behaviors, and emotions. So changing the way we think about and react to situations will help us feel better. And it tends to be short-term and goal-oriented for so a couple of weeks. Uh, you sort of have a bit of homework every week to try to change your mindset. And uh, it's, it's proven to be quite beneficial. DBT or dialectical behavioral therapy is derived from CBT and follows the dialectical process of problem, reaction, and then acceptance. I sort of look at it as a bit of CBT plus because it takes into account the whole thought behavior feelings thing, but also helps you to regulate emotion, teaches you how to tolerate the stress. So while you're having these problems, you know, in the present and as well as interpersonal relationship building and developing mindfulness in dealing with problems. So once you have been successfully treated for the moment, what next steps do we need? After the initial treatment, it is time for another assessment of their current mental state. 
think about what sort of level of follow-up is appropriate for the given individual. So this could be with a regular GP, it could be with the community mental health team, or if someone's risk is deemed high enough, uh, the home treatment team may be appropriate. The key thing with follow-up is to give a definitive appointment, not an appointment in one or two weeks' time. If a person does not attend that appointment, it's very important to actively chase them with phone calls, letters and visits. Never assume someone is alright. It is possible that they have disengaged due to a deterioration in their mental state. Think about coping strategies for patients who presented with uh, self-harm. Discuss the coping strategies with patients as well. This would include listing down the protective factors um, as a way of sort of reminding them. Also, listing down triggers and risk factors to remind uh, the person in front to avoid doing those things. With their permission, speak to their support network, such as family and friends, in order to educate them and alert the appropriate people if they notice a deterioration in the patient's mental state. Sometimes you have a situation where the patient does not want to stop self-harming, in which case you might want to discuss methods of harm reduction, such as using a clean blade, appropriate cleaning and dressing the wound after and so forth. It's important to remember that by suggesting these things, you're not condoning their actions, but you're preventing them from uh, further harm and you're minimizing the extent of harm in those uh, individuals. And so in general, one in six people will commit self-harm or a suicide attempt a year after an episode. That is pretty sad, but I suppose you could look at it as us successfully saving five other people. And that about covers all the important details for managing suicide and self-harm patients. In summary, the most important things are detailed clinical history in order to identify key risk factors and using them to formulate an accurate risk assessment to determine if a patient needs to be admitted or not. Physical treatments could be performed and the use of medications depending on any coexisting mental illness. CBT and DBT have been proven to be effective therapies for this patient group and once the crisis has settled, it is important to arrange appropriate follow-up to the level of risk arrange a definite appointment and chase them if they're missed, involve their support network and discuss coping strategies. And so, that about wraps up our first episode. If you've made it this far, thank you very much for listening. We would love to hear from you. You can reach us at questions4pp at gmail.com. That is not a joke, that is our actual email address. That's the number four and double letter P's at question for pp at gmail.com. Let us know if you've got any questions, feedback, or ideas for upcoming episodes. We have a plan to do deeper dives into these topics with guest experts. If that's something you would like, please email us and we'd be happy to do them. Our next episode is on schizophrenia, and we hope you would join us then. Please subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. We aim for this podcast to have fortnightly releases. If you don't see any new episodes, we are most likely delayed. I'd like to give credit to Kevin McLeod for the intro and ending song. Well, until then, folks, stay safe, stay sane, and try Malaysian food. It's amazing!